Uh, we are in a series on the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along with me on the screen here in just a little bit. I want to share with you just a couple of thoughts about Romans chapter 6, kind of give you an outline of how this is laid out. There's a lot of uh, theology in Romans chapter 6 that is debated amongst theologians. I was reading about that all this past week. It's kind of boring to be quite honest with you. There's like eight different outcomes on uh, some of the phrasing like died to sin. What does it mean to be uh, buried in Christ's uh, death, what is baptized into his death. What, is, what do some of these things mean? So theologians are kicking these things back and forth. But what I want to get at this morning is what's the main point of Romans chapter 6? What is the overarching point? Why is, why is the Spirit of God instructed Paul to write the words that he's written? And I think the title for our sermon today really captures that. It's this idea of if God forgives us, then why not sin? And that's the question that Paul is answering today. And he answers it in two different ways. Uh, first is verses 1 through 14, then verses 15 through the end. Verses 1 through 14, Paul answers the question, and the question that he raises there is in verse 1. So let me just share that with you real quickly. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now this is coming from what he had just said in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, he concluded that by saying that wherever sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 5 is that, look, no matter how bad our lives get, no matter how much uh, of a hole we dig for ourselves, the grace of God can always come in and restore us and rebuild us and re renew us. Um, and so wherever sin increases, he reminds us that grace, God's grace goes even further. God's grace abounds all the more. Then we come to this chapter 6, and so somebody maybe perhaps is beginning to think to themselves, well, if, as he says in this verse, is if God has all this grace, then why not sin and give God's grace an opportunity to show itself off? Right? Why not give God an opportunity to display all of his amazing graciousness? Um, and so that's perhaps one of the thoughts that somebody might have. And so Paul addresses that in verses 1 through 14. Then the second question that he asked, this is the second half of chapter 6, and this is kind of the second part of his outline, is this question in verse 15 where he says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under the grace? And so just kind of a little bit of historical context here of what he talked about with the law. The, in the Roman world, people would have understood the relationship between themselves and the gods of Rome, the gods of Greece. This idea of appeasement, that I do things for the gods, so therefore they will bless me. I do things for the gods so therefore they will show me their favor. I do things for the gods, so therefore they will not curse me. Rather, they will show me their mercy. And so I do things to appease the gods. And the Jews, and some of them, have distorted their concept of who God was as well. And their thinking was, well, if I obey the law, if I follow all these religious rituals, and I do all these things, then God will bless me. God will show me his favor. And so Paul comes in with his, his theology of grace, which is that we don't have to do anything. God loves us unconditionally. God loves us in spite of ourselves. And so this person comes in and says, look, if we're not under the law, if we're not trying to appease God, if we're not trying to get God to show us his favor, we're not trying to do things to curry his favor, if we're under the system of grace, then what's my motivation for not sinning? And then Paul lays out his argument uh, there as well. So at the heart of both of these questions, again, is the question that I'm raising here today, which is if God forgives us, if God has all this abounding grace, then why not just open the floodgates and have a lot of fun? Um, and so Paul addresses that for us today. So Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along with us on the screen. Let's stand together and read from God's Word. Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4, and then jumping to the end of the chapter, reading verses 20 through 22. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, last verse. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. And that was a little bit of extra stuff that we read here today. But um, let's dive into that. So we're going to begin at verse 1 with his question, what shall we say then? Remember, he's just been talking in verse 5 about how when we sin, the grace of God is even greater than, the, than our sin, but where sin increased, grace increases or abounds all the more. That where sin abounds, uh, grace superabounds. And then he asks this question, okay, well, if, with that in mind, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, this person is asking, if sin brings about God's grace, and it, then if I sin, it gives God an opportunity to show off. It gives God an opportunity to show the world how forgiving he is and how gracious he is. So why not show, let God show off? And why not let the world see all of God's amazing grace? Um, and so Paul is answering to that. Well, really what, what's happening here is this is somebody who is being very um, glib, very cavalier about sin. Uh, they're treating it almost as if it's, uh, it's just another thing. And so this is somebody who has spent a significant amount of time thinking through this logic to try and defend or, 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 or rationalize some of the behaviors that they're participating in. Um, and so Paul is responding to that. Uh, Paul says very clearly, very sharply, verse 2, he says, by no means, exclamation point, right? That's Paul's response. And then he, he goes on to give a rationale, but the beginning of his rationale, the beginning of all his logic, he wants to say, by no means, absolutely not. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? This is not something that we want to entertain. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, as I was studying this past week, one of the things that kind of sparked in my mind and made me start to understand this passage a little bit better was when I did some historical context and realizing that the people that Paul is writing this to, more than likely, are first-generation Christians. These are people who, um, who were not raised in a godly home. These are people who, who their families, their grandparents, going back generations, did not grow up in the church. I mean, this is first century Christianity. Uh, these are people who perhaps had just come to a relationship with Christ in the last six months, or perhaps in the last two years. Um, these are people who were raised in, with all the Greek pagan gods, and they'd go down to the temples, and they knew and understood all that sort of stuff. And that was the life that they used to live. But now they've come to faith in Christ. And so something has changed dramatically in their life. And so Paul, recognizing that in verse 4, he says, For you were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, Paul uses the imagery here of baptism in verse 4. And he's talking about how you know, when somebody is immersed by baptism, they go down into the water, and that is a symbolic of how we're dead in our trespasses and our sin, and we are raised up out of the water in the newness of life. We're washed in the blood of Jesus. And that whole baptism uh, moment is a symbolic moment. It, it has significant meaning. And Paul's using that to kind of describe here that, look, this was your old way of life, how you used to live, the life, that pagan life that you came out of. You went down into the water, and now you've come up a new creation. You've come up something completely different. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what? 
creation. He's new. He's brand new. Things have, the life is starting over. This is almost like starting their whole life over again. He says, verse 18, the old has passed away, the new has come. For these early Christians, baptism represented a breaking with the past. And you can imagine that, again, their grandparents weren't there in the church on the day that they were baptized, applauding this decision that they were making, affirming this decision that they were making. Mom and dad were not there taking pictures, and the whole family got together for lunch after church to celebrate this. This was a very lonely decision for many of these first early Christians to make because they were having to put an old way of life behind them. They having to take a 180-degree turn from a lot of their lifelong friendships that they had had. Perhaps they were even being disowned by their family. So for them to be baptized, for them to go down into the water and leave behind an old way of life and rise up as a new creation. Friends, that was very palpable when this happened for them. And so Paul is saying to them here in these early verses here in Romans chapter 6 that look, that was you, you know about your old way of life. You remember how it was for you. You have now left that behind. Why, he's asking, would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back to that? That's the question he's raising. Verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul says that the point of our being justified was not just that we could have our sins forgiven, but also that we could walk a process of eventual eradication of that old person that we used to be. Paul, using this very same language in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's giving personal testimony here. I have been crucified with Christ. The old person that I used to be, very angry guy. The Apostle Paul was a difficult person to be around to the maximum. Um, he was a guy that threw people in jail, separated husbands and wives, made orphans out of their children, had no compassion in his heart whatsoever. He stood there while Stephen was being stoned to death. The Apostle Paul was an angry guy, and everybody around him knew that. And Paul says of that old person he used to be, he says, I finally come to a place of maturity in my life where I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The old guy that I used to be, he's gone. He's dead. And he says, what lives in me now is Jesus. That is Christ's likeness. He says, I've become, I've, 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 the love of Christ, the, the joy of Christ, the self-control of Christ, the patience of Christ, all of those things have now infiltrated who I am. They've become a part of who I am. I have a new identity in him. And that's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. He's saying that the old person that he used to do is dead and gone. He's been changed. This is a self-reflective question that Paul asks here in verse 2. Given who you used to be, given who I used to be, and considering the change that has happened in our lives now, why would we ever want to go back to that? Um, should I put God's grace on display? Should I give God an opportunity to show off his grace and his forgiveness by sinning? Paul says, by no means. All right, verse 15. So that's the first section of Romans chapter 6. The second section of Romans chapter 6, he's asked a, kind of a similar question along these same lines. He says, verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? As I said earlier, the relationship of many of the secularists 
of Paul's day would have been wanting to appease the gods, wanting to do something for the gods in order to curry the favor of the gods, in order to get them to bless them, in order to get them not to curse them. Even the Jews, again, would have understood this if they had distorted God's concept of grace. If you want the gods to bless you, if you want their favor, then you have to do something for them. And they would have done this by going to the temple and offering sacrifices, by making religious, uh, doing religious observances in public. And so it was kind of like, hey, God, I was in church today. Hey, God, I went down to the temple today and made a sacrifice. Bless me. Right? What, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're saying, God, I did something for you, so reciprocate back to me. I've appeased you, God, so now do something for me. And so that's the relationship that they would have understood. And now again, here comes Paul with his understanding of salvation by grace theology. This concept of how we don't have to do anything to get God to love us. We don't have to do anything to get God's favor. God just loves us unconditionally. That's how he works. God's a merciful God, friends. Isn't that wonderful? And, and so Paul is saying, and so they're saying, well, then what is the motivation then? If we're not under the law, if we're not in this appeasement mode, if we're under grace, then what's my motivation for not just opening up the floodgates and having a bunch of fun, right? And so Paul says, end of verse 15, he says, by no means. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? End of verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Paul uses the imagery here of slavery. A slave is somebody who has no say. A slave is somebody who has no objection to be made. A slave is told where to go, when to go there, what it is that they're going to do. A slave is beholden to their master. And Paul is saying, look, sin will treat you like you are its slave. Paul is saying if we are to present ourselves to sin this way, don't you know what the outcome will be? Sin will become your master. Sin will take over your life. Sin will destroy your life. Ask the drug addict who the master is. Ask the alcoholic who the master is. Paul goes on to talk about this in verse 20. We read it at the beginning. Verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, so back then in the old way of life that you remember you lived, distinctly remember that, he says, back in that way of life, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at the time? Were you yielding fruit of pleasure? Were you yielding fruit of true joy in your life? Were you making fond memories for yourself that down the road you would think, oh yeah, I remember that time when I did that. Is that what you're doing? He says, no. He says, now looking back on that old way of life, it's the things about which you are ashamed, he says. He says, why would, that's the fruit that you were bearing. He says, in the end of that, all of that, for the end of those things is death. And he goes on to say as much in verse 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. Um, well, those are our verses for today. Let me just kind of sum up real quickly. Again, our title was, If God Forgives, Why Not Sin? And Paul answers that question by saying two different things, two very clear responses, that one is, that was your old way of life. It was the life you left behind. Why would you want to go back to that? And then secondly, reminding us that slave is, or sin is a master. It will make a slave out of us. It will destroy our lives. It is a dangerous thing, like a copperhead, to run around holding on to the tail of that thing. Paul's saying that's like what sin is. Eventually, it's going to nab you. All right, well, that's our, um, our, our passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask my favorite question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the theology lesson here this morning. You're kind of getting into some stuff here, some doctrine. But, I mean, how does that affect where I'm living today? How, what, what, what difference does that make to where I'm living? Um, let's talk about that. You know, 
sometimes I find it helpful to uh, be reminded of the wages of sin. I think it's a good antidote to what ails us, uh, to some of our sinful nature, which wants sometimes to bubble up and, and, and participate in some things. It's a good preventative. Um, and so when we get a good picture of what sin does, of the havoc that it wreaks, of the destruction that it brings, I think it can serve, again, as a good preventative for us. Um, I'm going to say, I'm thinking 15, maybe 16 years ago, I can't remember, Claire, when it was, 2006, we loaded up the family. They were little. We only had two at the time. And we moved to Kentucky. We went up to, I was working on some of my doctoral work and finishing up some degree program there. And um, we, there was 12 of us in this, in this program together. It was a preaching and church administration and biblical teaching pro- program. It was a really neat experience. And one of the guys that was in the program with us was significantly older than the rest of us. We were all pastors. We'd all come out of pastoral background. Uh, we were there working on this degree. But one of the guys had had significant, probably about my age now, uh, had had significant uh, experience in ministry. Um, and I'm going to call him Patrick just for anonymity's sake. Patrick quickly became a mentor to our group um, because of all of his experience. And he was a high-capacity leader. Let me tell you, I mean, he was a great biblical teacher, tremendous communicator, had come from a church that was really thriving and growing and doing amazing things. Um, the church that he had pastored was a church that was known in the community for being a church of prayer. It was a church that was known throughout the community as being a church that was full of the Holy Spirit of God. Um, and he had a, it was just a strong biblical teaching there. Um, and as our year together was wrapping up, um, Patrick was invited to stay on as the preaching professor in residence. So every year when a new group of 12 or 14 students or however many were coming through would come through, he would be there and he would kind of walk with them through the year and help uh, coach for preaching and just be a part of that whole program. And it was a real honor for him to be able to have that opportunity. Um, and it said a lot about the kind of leader that he was, that he was tapped for this, for this role. Um, and we all felt like, yes, I mean, he is the right guy. He was absolutely deserving. He was just a huge... Uh, inspiration to all of us. We knew he'd be, be a blessing going forward. Um, about a year after I left the program uh, and was here at Hebron, um, I got a phone call that, uh, about some things that had happened. And someone at Patrick's former church, a young lady, had come forward and confessed that the two of them had been having an affair. Um, she was married. Uh, this had gone on for some time. You can imagine how that would have impacted this thriving church and it still, to this day, holds, and I know this church, it still, to this day, holds a gray cloud over that church community. Um, He had a secret life that he was living, all while proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And the people at his church just felt deeply betrayed. They didn't understand this. I mean, how could something like this happen? You say, well, where is Patrick today? Um, Patrick, for starters, lost his teaching job. He lost his livelihood. He lost his influence. Um, his marriage was significantly strained. I, I've lost track of him in the last number of years. I'm not sure how things are there. I lost strained relationships. Um, I know that he's tried to stay in ministry, but so much of the broad influence that he had and, and the potential that he had for Christ and for the gospel, most much of that has been lost. Um, has God forgiven him? Absolutely. God, of course God has forgiven him. But forgiveness, friends, does not erase away the wages 
of sin. Uh, my brother and I were talking this past week on the phone and uh, just unrelated topic, um, and he just mentioned, he said, you know what? Folly has its consequences. You say, again, I mean, how could that happen? I mean, a pastor, extremely high-capacity guy who loved the Word and taught the Word and, and stood in front of his church and led them to get to know Christ and to draw, draw deeply into prayer life themselves. I mean, how could something like this happen? Very simply, friends, Patrick underestimated the power of sin. He thought he could control it. He thought he could master it, but he couldn't. I could multiply stories for you, friends, of people throughout my years in ministry who have sat across my desk in my office, and we've gone through boxes of tissues, and we've prayed, and we've sought after God. Um, and same thing. They underestimated the power of sin. They presumed on the grace of God, a Christian flirting with sin before they knew what hit them. Sin had nabbed them, sin had bagged them, and sin had eaten them for lunch. Now, I want to be very clear about this. We love these people. I love Patrick. He is a wonderful man, and I know that God has great things in mind for him, but again, folly has its consequences. We love these people. And we want to help them pick up the pieces of their life. But the sad part is that there never had to be any broken pieces to start with. Ask David. I'm sure David wishes that, I, I know that this is not a warm and fuzzy sermon, okay? I, I get that, all right? Um, I was a little concerned about that when I was preparing this week and realizing kind of the heavy nature of this. This is not one of those where you walk out going, God loves me, and I know that God loves me, and I feel so encouraged in my heart, and I feel lifted up in my heart. This is not one of those. This is Romans chapter 6. And the Spirit of God is telling us today, like I'm sure David would have liked to have heard, for somebody to say, David, I've seen you up on the rooftop a lot lately. What's that all about? A very difficult conversation for somebody to raise with David. And I'm sure he wouldn't have liked it at the time. But a year or so later, I'm sure David would have wished that somebody had come along and confronted him on what was going on in his life. Friends, the Holy Spirit of God is warning us in Romans chapter 6. God loves you. Please don't miss this. God loves you unconditionally. You don't have to do anything to curry his favor. God's grace is greater that where our sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. God can come in no matter how deep a hole we dig for ourselves in life. And God's grace can come and restore and heal and put those broken pieces back together. And we need him to do that. We count on God to do that. But here in Romans chapter 6, God's coming to us. Like David probably wishes somebody had come to him to just say, hey, whoa, let me get your attention for just a second. Let's talk about the wages of sin. Paul says, by, I mean, if, if God forgives, why not sin? Paul says, by no means. Have you lost your mind that you would even entertain something like that? Don't you understand that playing with sin is like walking around with a cobra holding it by the tail? Don't you understand the danger of what you're talking about? Don't you understand that even though we're under the grace of God, it in no way cancels the ill effects of sin? Folly has its consequences. And unless I miss my guess, and I don't think I do. 
there are believers in our church who are engaged in exactly what God's word is warning us about here today. There are young people dabbling in sin. There are husbands whose spiritual lives have slowly begun to erode away. Not because of some gargantuan, terrible, scandalous sin that's happened in your life, but just you've allowed things to slip away, just little by little. And we've begun to do things now, years later, that we never would have thought we would do. Presuming on the grace of God, counting on God's forgiveness, and in doing so, we have underestimated the power of sin. We say, I can handle this. It's not a problem. I know when to stop, and I can stop if I want to. I'm sure, friends, that's what David said. And I'm sure that's what Samson said. And I'm sure that's what they all say. Folks, there are some of us here playing with sin. Maybe it's still secretly hidden from everyone else, but you know in your heart that it's there. You know that it's wrong. You know that it is a violation of God's holiness. And when you first got into it, you figured, I can master this. But now you're wondering who is the master and who is the slave. There's some of us here in the workplace flirting around secretly, kind of enjoying the attention that we're getting. There's some of us here who are allowing materialism to creep into our lives, and we're finding ourselves getting more contentment and more joy out of acquiring new possessions than we are out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, that's backwards. There are some of us here who used to call what we used to call a social drink is no longer a social drink. There are folks here who are friends who maybe a friend gave you some pills, and when you get around that friend, you participate with the pills, and now you're beginning to wonder, well, how can I get some of those for myself? There are folks, men in particular, looking at women, fantasizing in our minds what it would be like to be with her, and that's beginning to affect the kinds of things we watch on TV, the kind of movies that we allow ourselves to watch. It's happening. There are people here carrying bitterness and grudges and unforgiving spirits, and it's eating up our lives. There are people here who are entertaining thoughts of jealousy and envy, and we are losing the contentment that God wants us to have for all things. You say, but Gordon, this is a Bible church. I mean, this is a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. That, what are you talking about? Friends, we can, even in the best of churches, this sorts of stuff can happen. Even amongst the best of Christians, friends, sin has a way of creeping in. And some of us here this morning need for today to be a watershed day. A day when we, like Paul, is encouraging us here in Romans chapter 6 to do to say, that's who you used to be. Let's not resurrect that ever again. Let's make a decision that today, today is going to be different moving forward. That today I want for these things to stop. That we need to come to grips with these things today. We need to say to God, God, I am so thankful that you have been patient with me. Boy, you have been so patient and so gracious with me, God. But this activity in my life that is dishonoring to you, that is self-destructive, God, it stops today. Some of us need to say, God, I come to you today to repent of this. God, I come to you today to get my life right with you. God, I come to you today to forsake sin. God, I come to you today to make a real change in my life moving forward. And I come to do that today. I don't know. I don't know what the sin is in your life. The thing that's 
creeping in and wanting to take over. It's different for everyone. But my prayer is that the Spirit of God has used this message to pinpoint exactly what is going on and what needs to change. And my prayer is that he will do it with so much force in a way that is so compelling that we cannot resist the Spirit of God speaking to us, friends, that we are willing to say, God, okay, today, Lord, I'm going to commit my heart anew and surrender myself anew to you as the master of my life. Friends, sin will eat you up. It will, if you, let, if you play with it, if you let it happen. Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to ask the guys if they would just to turn the lights down. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, some of us just need to do some business with you. You're speaking to our heart. You're speaking right into our life here. Romans chapter 6, Lord, we were your mark and you hit it. God, and we just... We just need to come to you in these quiet moments of communion and just say, Lord, you know, I'm not hiding anything from you. You know what's going on. And God, I, I, I need your help. I can't, I can't break this by myself, by my own power, by my own strength. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I, I need you to help separation to happen between the old person that I used to be. God, I don't want that anymore. I don't want to step back into that anymore. We just ask that in these quiet moments of communion, your Holy Spirit would instruct us that you would hear the words that we pray in our hearts that you need to hear. Words of real commitment, words of real turning and change. We thank you, Lord, that we have sat under the teaching of the clear truth of the Word of God today. Lord, may we leave this place never the same. Lord, we give you this space. Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray in Christ's holy name. The communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We invite you to join in a time of remembering Christ's broken body and his shed blood. And in just a few moments, we'll close with our final song.